is Ronaldo. Oh, my goodness. You don't save those. Out of this world. Messi. 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 From the international stage to right here at home, this is FUVFC, talking all things soccer on WFUV Sports. After a week-long struggle, success story, whatever you want to frame it, U.S. men's finish, World Cup qualifying January into February window, sitting second in the CONCACAF table, tied with Mexico on 21 points. With that being said, welcome back to FUVFC. Keenan Troy here, Newcast, Nick Guzman, Matty Bimonte. Guys, before we break down all that we saw in those three matches by the U.S. men's national team, how are we all doing? I'm doing pretty good. You know, people say they don't like international break. They don't like that it pauses the major leagues in Europe. But I always love watching the men's national team play. Watching all of CONCACAF, everything that goes on. We've got the African Cup of Nations, too. So I'm doing pretty good. A lot of good soccer going on right now. Yeah, same for me. I think it's so fun to watch soccer in the winter, especially with the U.S. men's game happening in Minnesota, of all places. I thought that was wild to watch everybody freeze. So it's been really fun to see that, especially on this break. Nick, you did tease it. African Cup of Nations going on simultaneously with these World Cup qualifiers. We'll touch on that a little bit later in the show. But as Americans, it is our patriotic duty to break down this past World Cup qualifying window where the United States beat El Salvador at home 1-0, lost to Canada 2-0 on the road in what was really a win-and-you're-in type of match. Yes, mathematically, Canada still could lose out and have to be situated in fourth place, maybe even fifth barring some drama in the bottom of the table. But pretty much in that U.S. versus Canada game, that was pretty much win and you're secure in the group. And at the very least, you'll have a spot to play to get into Qatar. And then a triumphant 3-0 win last night, Wednesday night at home versus Honduras. Maddie, you said it. In Minnesota, I maybe that's strategy, but that, you know, maybe the Honduran players have never played in that kind of weather. But also the United States team is compi- you know, composed of guys that, play abroad and they're not used to that weather either so didn't matter in the long run they get seven out of an available nine points but once again I find myself at the end of a World Cup qualifying window saying what's next for this team so Nick let's start with you pick any of the three matches I don't care what direction we go I'm gonna have a lot to say about the Canada match so know that when you start talking about whatever match you want to pick but any of any of the three Give me your synopsis, or if, as a whole. It doesn't matter to me, but what are we thinking after watching those three matches this past week? I have a lot to say, too, and I think I'll just go in sequential order of how the matches played out. This window pretty much reminded me of 
almost every other window in this qualifying campaign where good things happen, but then there's just something that it leaves you something to be desired. Not something goes wrong. They lose the game. They drop points on the road. Nothing. It didn't go perfectly. Starting in El Salvador or against El Salvador at home in Columbus, the one nil victory, you know, that's a game where the U.S. controlled it throughout. You'd like to see more than one nil win against El Salvador. Jesus Ferreira missed some chances up top, but for the most part, El Salvador never really uh, tested Matt Turner in goal. And it was a relatively easy victory for the U.S. Though, you know, at some points I thought like the desire wasn't there. The fight wasn't really there. They got the victory, so that's all that matters. So you kind of push that to the side. But then you get to the Canada game where it was just disappointing. And, you know, you can say we possess the ball. Greg Berhalter in his post-match press conference, I think, will all touch on this, how he says, I, I can't remember a road performance so dominant in which a team didn't win, which is just one of the most ridiculous statements I've ever heard. When a team like Canada their whole strategy is to sit back and let you possess. It doesn't mean anything if you're possessing the ball and not do anything with it. The U.S. could not break down Canada. Probably the best chance was off a header in the first half on a corner kick from Weston McKenney. But you played right into Canada's hands. That's not dominating. Canada sat back, hit you on the counter, scored two goals on the counter, and that's exactly what they wanted to do. And they were set up that way. So if you play your strategy right into the hands of the Canadians. That is not dominating the game, no matter what the possession says. At the end of the day, they won 2-0. They got the three points. They were the better team because their game plan was more – it was better. You know, the United States liked to possess the ball under Greg Berhalter, but it's, it's just most of the time it seems like the possession goes nowhere. There was one moment in that Canada game where Brendan Aronson – this is a very specific moment, but I think it's symbolic of the way this team plays. Your Aronson picks up the ball. And he could easily drive forward, but instead he dribbles back almost comically and passes back to the center backs and the U.S. kind of gets possession going again. There doesn't seem to be any attacking flow, even moving on to the Honduras game. You know, the three goals were from set pieces, which is nice because we've struggled from set pieces in this, in this whole qualifying campaign. Kellen Acosta decided to kind of turn into Andre Pirlo in that game. But the result yesterday was great, but the Canada game, Worries me for when, you know, say we do get to the World Cup, you know, fingers crossed. I think we will. But in a game, the atmosphere probably won't be as hostile. But a game where a team comes out with a, with a game plan like that or just a game plan that's more well thought through than the United States. And Greg Berhalter seems like in those kinds of situations, he's a little tactically inept. I love him as a motivator. He seems like a real players coach. He just seems like a funny guy the way he does his behind-the-back bounce passes on the, on the sideline for no apparent reason. Seems like a cool character, but tactically, I think he got exposed against Canada. And, you know, the Honduras game definitely a must-win considering their, their bottom of the table. And it was a good win, but, again, just the Canada game leaves a really bad taste in my mouth. No, I completely agree. I think, for me, the El Salvador game was kind of same old U.S. It was a good win, but at the same time, it wasn't anything exciting for me. I think when you look at the Canada game, you have to take into account how poor the midfield played that game and why that's so crucial for them going forward. When you have talented guys like McKinney in the midfield and you cannot break up drives by Canada going down, you're not going to have any great play in the long run. And I think that was their big issue 
was such a disjointed midfield. And then when you compare that to yesterday's match, I felt like the midfield completely increased. And I think that was as a result, like you said, Nick, of a lot of the set piece goals that were being done. I thought the right side, especially, were dominating in the first half. I think all of the passing going on between McKinney and Weah was so important for them going forward. I think that was really missing in the Canada game. And you can't have too many mistakes in that area because too many teams are so good in the midfield. That, to me, is what is troubling, I think, in the long run. And that has been something that I think the U.S. has struggled with for so long. I think with Honduras, the U.S. did get kind of an easy game. I think Honduras fouled way too much. I think they had a very sloppy game, and it in turn allowed the U.S. to bring out those set pieces. I think when you compare it to like an El Salvador game, where to me it wasn't as frequent, you didn't get to see the U.S. really show those set pieces off, and that's obviously how they have been good at scoring recently trying to move the ball down the field has been very difficult. And I noticed another thing in yesterday's game that bothered me a lot was the frequency of the U.S. players to shoot with their head down. It was almost every single miss, there was a player with his head down, not looking at it, and it consequently goes wide, goes straight to the goalie, etc., And I think if that isn't nipped in the butt, which is such a rec level soccer thing for me, the U.S. is going to struggle, especially when they go, hopefully, into the World Cup. I think there's still that potential, like we said. I'm pretty optimistic about it. But those little things, I think, have impeded the U.S. so much that it is scary to watch, especially when you play a team like Canada, when you have to look at the teams that they could face ultimately. Yeah, Maddie, I agree that finishing has always been lackluster for this men's team, and that's probably before, you know, Burrowhalter gets the job. Klinsman was, you know, skeptical there. We can all look back and cry at that Wando sitter missed against Belgium in stoppage time in the 2014 World Cup. But now it's time for me to sound off, and I have a lot to say. So if at any point you guys want to interject, feel free to hop in because this could go – on for quite some time. So I think first with that El Salvador game, why isn't Ricardo Pepe starting? You know how dominant he's been for the United States in all of World Cup qualifying, but now he wants to run out Jesus Ferreira, who you see does not deserve to be a first-team starter with some of those sitters that he missed. There was two, one of them kind of excusable, trying to put it, you know, top 90 from about eight yards out. Tough angle to sneak that one in. He gets a ball flicked onto him at the back post, He can't do anything. He somehow skies it. Completely bonkers that he should be even in that starting lineup. And, yeah, you forgive the miss because it's a game, but the real question comes down to the boss. Why is he starting in that match? El Salvador, outside of that, I mean, you'll take the victory. You realistically, one nothing isn't something to be proud of, but Cold Knight and Columbus, forgivable. I think the United States was, you know, Twelman was saying it. Everybody in the booth was saying it. You know, at halftime, they're saying it like the United States has a clear advantage on set pieces. Their set pieces look terrible in that game. You know, they have tall center backs against El Salvador's, you know, I don't want to say microscopic, but comparatively, you know, Walker Zimmerman's got three inches on a guy and somehow the ball isn't whipped in towards his head every time. That being said, in the El Salvador game, I'm going to skip Canada or forego Canada and come back to it at the end of this because I think the Honduras game, you know, 
yes, it's nice to have three goals, and yes, it's nice for them all to come off set pieces. Maybe that was something Burhalter was instructing. I just think, you know, as Nick said, Kellen Acosta decided that he wanted to produce service for once in his national team career. Good for Kellen Acosta. You know, with that being said, it's it's concerning for me, at least, watching that game against a Honduras team that is not to the level that you'll see at the World Cup if you go, and you can find ways to, you know, penetrate the back line and, you know, score goals in the run of play. You take the win, that's fine. And, you know, those two matches, you get six points out of an available six. Job well done. The Canada game is, you know, I don't want to say mind-boggling, but it's definitely a head-scratcher neck. You hit the head, the nail right on the head, and it's just possession with no aim. And Greg Berhalter, we can talk about him after I'm done with this, but he is just – he just doesn't know how to adjust. I've been saying this forever that – Anytime he sets a lineup, it's his lineup. We're just going to try and bore him to death. And to be frank, there's not enough creativity in terms of talent on this team. You know, you bear in mind of how young guys are, that that playmaking only develops as they become, you know, seasoned veterans in Europe and with the national team and that chemistry gets better, that the runs are made and the balls are played where they're supposed to be played. All that being said, it's just mind-boggling. Jossie Zardes, why in God's good name is he starting a world must-win World Cup qualifying match? He's had time and time again to prove himself for the national team. Yes, he's fine for Columbus Crew, but this isn't Columbus Crew. And, you know, when you give up an early goal to Kyle Lahren in the seventh minute, that should be, you know, Greg Berhalter saying, okay, we need to go out and get a goal. And you just can't find a way through. You know, Paul Ariola tries to do that bicycle kick. I don't like him. I don't know why he's coming off the bench. He realistically produces nothing for this national team. And, yes, it was a fancy-looking bicycle kick, but it's still missed about four feet wide. That all being said, I think this Canada game was indicative of the problem the United States has had throughout World Cup qualifying, which is they can't string together wins, and they can't win when it matters most. You know, they can beat El Salvador, and then they're going to drop one against Canada. But then anytime the pressure's turned on Greg Berhalter enough – he does a good enough job to turn it off with a 3-0 win against Honduras so that he's no longer the problem and then, oh, they had a rough game on the road. Granted, you know, Tim Weah couldn't travel because his COVID vaccine information somehow violated what Canada was looking for. But, you know, just the substitutions, you're looking, you know, you're down one nothing. you need a goal. You bring on Jordan Morris, Paul Areola, Pepe. It just – telling Acosta, it's just, you know, there's no – the depth of the United States hurts them. And it really hurts them when your head coach doesn't know how to manage that depth. Very frustrating match to watch. Also very frustrating that they decided to put it on at three o'clock Eastern, you know, simultaneously with the NFL. I had both going at the same time, but in terms of growth of the sport, you know, that's really not the schedule you're looking for. You know, when the NFL is going to play championship Sunday, maybe it's unavoidable, whatever it may be. The United States should be thankful that people were watching football instead of soccer, because that was not a performance that I liked any of, which brings us to the bigger question, Nick, is I think, Greg, I mean, we realistically can't say that Greg Berhalter is going to be sacked before the World's Cup. I think it'd just be too much, you know, controversy and also concern of how you're going to feel the team that knows the new system within now 10 months of the tournament kicking off. But is there any hope for Greg Berhalter that he can, you know, produce with this men's national team because you know we talk about a golden generation that's been given so much and you know plays at the highest level abroad but you watch Christian Pulisic play for this national team he's 
to me, if you look at his Chelsea self versus his self here, he's regressed. You know, McKinney, Maddie, you emphasized it in that Honduras game, and you know, in that Canada game, they're fine at possessing the ball, but him and Musa still can't, you know, pack that punch in the final third to, you know, deliver con- consistent quality passes. Like in that El Salvador game, one of the best through balls was played by Walker Zimmerman on a straight ping to Tim Weah. I think Tim Weah should start every match out wide. All this being said, Nick, all of this ranting being done, what is Greg Berhalter's, what is his ceiling for this men's national team? I think the one bright spot when you think of Greg and how he's managed his national team is that the defensive record is pretty good. So, you know, who knows? You could get to the World Cup. You could play rock solid defensive soccer. You win a couple one nils and you get into the knockout rounds and then maybe you consider it a success. But I think if you're thinking long-term about how you want this team to play, the way Greg sets up his team tactically is just not good enough for the level of creativity that we need. When you play three midfielders like McKenney, Musa, and Adams, all of which are fantastic players, but you play those three as a trio, and then you push any player who has any kind of attacking player, like Brendan Aronson, Gio Reyna when he's healthy, who aren't really wingers, and you push them to the wing because that's just how your system plays, and you have three players in the middle who don't really – have that knack in the final third. Weston McKenney can score goals, but he's not really a playmaker. He's not going to pull the strings. When you set your team up like that, it's hard to break the lines down. And I think a more traditional maybe system where you play two of Adams, McKenney, and Moose in the midfield, and maybe if Gio Reyna is healthy, or we saw Luca De La Torre play very good in that game against Honduras, have him in the midfield along with two of the more defensive minds to try and just spur some attacking soccer. And you keep the pace on the wings with Wea and Pulisic, who, you know, I'm a, I'm a person who's been watching him play in Europe for Chelsea, even Borussia Dortmund before that. And really, if you go all the way back to like 2020, I would say, post-COVID lockdown, that's the best I've ever seen Christian Pulisic play. Then the Epic Cup final against Arsenal, he tears his hamstring. And ever since that moment, he's had some, he's had some flashes where he's looked like his old self. He doesn't look as quick. He doesn't really look as sharp, which is concerning. You know, a player like him who, who takes as many fouls as he does, it's, you know, it's the question of longevity is definitely there. But to get back to your question, Keenan, I think Greg's ceiling is maybe getting to the round of 16 in Qatar with a good defensive record and getting some set piece goals off some good delivery. But I can't see this team really going far, at least in 2022 under him. I think, like you said, Keenan, there's no way he gets fired unless they don't qualify. It's, I think it's just too late in the cycle for that to happen. But the fact that the way he sets his team up and they can't win on the road, for to save their lives, they can't win a game on the road in CONCACAF. We hear all the time, it's hard to win on the road in CONCACAF. We understand they've been Honduras on the road. But, you know, in Jamaica, in El Salvador, those are games where you feel like you could get a win. And if you could get a win in any of those games, you know, these coming road games against Mexico and Costa Rica – where the U.S. have done terribly historically in World Cup qualifying wouldn't matter so much. If you could just, you know, if those early results went your way. But I think these games in Mexico and this games in, these games in Costa Rica in the March window, now that they mean so much, it's a little concerning. I think if we're looking at it from a mathematical perspective, I think a win against Panama and maybe a point in Mexico or Costa Rica gets you across the line, maybe in third place. But... The fact that it's come down to this, 
and what we've shown in this cycle after, you know, it's been, you know, four years, over four years since we didn't qualify for the World Cup. And that seemed like a low point. And we're definitely, the, the future is definitely brighter. There's more talented players. You feel like in the right system, we could do a lot. And I think we will qualify, but it's still a little disheartening as someone who follows this team. This is probably one of my favorite sports teams to follow in general. I like following all the players in Europe and what they do at their clubs and, you know, where they're moving to and who's playing and who's scoring, who's in good form. So it hurts a little bit to see the team struggle at times, but I think if Greg can just be a little bit less stubborn and realize that the system that he plays is not, it's, it's good for possession football. McKenny and Musa, great possessors of the ball, great drivers of the ball, but the, the final pass lacks. And try and play with a little more, you know, incisive edge. I think this team can really improve, but it's a big if because Greg is it, very stuck in his ways. He's a guy who makes his substitutions at like the same marker point every single game, you know, to a T. He's very stubborn, and whether or not he changes is a big question. I think we'll qualify, but, you know, there's just, there's just this lingering feeling of, I wouldn't say disaster, but just the fact of what we went through four years ago. It's not totally off the table, which at this point, going to the final window kind of hurts a little bit. I think stubborn is the perfect word to use. And in fact, I would also add rigid to him as a coach. I think there is a lack of variety with this team. And I think as great as a 3-0 victory was and as great as it is to see set pieces, if that's all you're scoring off of, that to me is very troubling. Because I think as an opposing team, attacking or defending against set pieces is very easy. Once you learn the routine, once you learn where the players are going to go, it's just can you get there in time. When your team is being told specific routes to run and specific plays to play, you eliminate any movement with the ball to me. I think the issue with Burhalter is that he doesn't encourage his players to finish in other ways than what he has told them. And I think it makes the players, while they can possess, look lost to me. And I think specifically when I watched the U.S. women play about a week or two ago, it was like night and day to me. I think when you look at the women's team, there is a chemistry that I think the men's team lacks. And whether that has not been addressed by Berhalter in practices is one issue. Whether it's the players simply not playing together is another. And I think when you constantly focus on the idea of, okay, this is the way we're going to play football and this is the only way we're going to play football, it's never going to work out in the long run. I think when you play against, I don't want to say lower level, but I would say less developed teams like in El Salvador, you can obviously exploit that and you can obviously perform better. But when you start to play a team like Canada, who has the ability to move around the field, who has the ability to drive and finish, you can't rely on those set pieces, which I think Halter does. And I don't think that's going to be beneficial in the long run. I don't think he's very flexible with his team either. Like you mentioned, guys, he's not rotating his players in the way they should. And finally, when you move players out to the wing, there was finally success because you're able to move that ball out of the midfield where if you're not performing there and you're stuck there, 
you're never going to get a shot on goal, they finally performed better. And so I think there is no chance for him to be sacked anytime soon. But I don't see this team going far in the World Cup. I think they can definitely make it looking at their March schedule. But until some of these things are addressed, I don't really see the U.S. going forward. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's just frustrating because, Nick, you touched on it. And, you know, if you followed the United States throughout this entire CONCACAF qualifying, there have been head-scratching losses that now certainly make things a lot more interesting. You know, you look at that draw to El Salvador on the road. That's a head-scratcher. First draw to Canada, another head-scratcher. You know, that We talk about that loss to Jamaica. And draw to Jamaica. It's just tough for the United States moving forward. And so I think that it's ultimately a poor, not a poor representation of U.S. soccer, but an accurate one. That underneath, that under this boss, it's going to be very difficult. And in his system, it's going to be very, even more difficult to get results when you need them the most. Bear in mind, the teams that they're playing in this upcoming last qualification window, Mexico, Panama, Costa Rica, all of them are looking to get into that top three. You know, Panama sits on the outside. Costa Rica sits on the outside at 16 and at, no, let me revisit their points. Cause I think I was going to get, yeah, at 17 and 16, excuse me. You know, Panama sitting at 17, four points out. Costa Rica sitting at 16, you know, a little bit harder at five points, but it's still attainable so long as that they win their games. And the United States has to play three, four, and five in order to secure a spot in the world cup. And Nick, you touched on it. You know, you're probably hoping four probably mathematically does the job, but they're not going to be easy four points. And I assure you that, you know, if we saw the performance we saw against El Salvador, against Costa Rica, Panama, or Mexico, the United States aren't going to win that match. And especially if you see that performance we saw against Canada, the United States will not win that match. And even that Honduras game, three, no great, great, you know, scoreline to end with. You probably will run into some difficulty because you're playing teams that are not only talented, but they're also hungry because they want to advance to the World Cup just as badly as you guys do. And they really don't care what legacy or storyline the United States has of like redeeming themselves. They would do love nothing more than to have the United States looking at the World Cup from their couches yet again. This all being said, I'm optimistic. This team always drags my feelings into the mud, watching them try and play competitive soccer. But, Maddie, you said it best, optimism, because I really don't know what the state of soccer in the country, both in terms of the team itself, but more importantly on a popular basis, in terms of a viewership base, I don't know what it's going to look like if they miss this upcoming World Cup because it's inexcusable that teams that you should be trouncing if you want to be the best team in CONCACAF and, you know, you're pulling players from all over the world to, you know, recruiting them to come join who play for premier clubs in Europe. It's embarrassing if you can't get results against teams that you need to get results against. And if they happen to not qualify, Greg Berhalter better move to, I don't know where he would move. Turks and Caicos, maybe. He needs to get out of the country because he is going to have a lot of difficulty finding a job after this one if he fails to qualify the most talented United States men's national team of all time into a World Cup. That all being said, it's not the only soccer that's going on right now. The African Cup of Nations is advancing into the finals. Yesterday, Senegal 
purchased their ticket into that final match against Burkina Faso, winning 3-1. to one. Right now we're scoreboard watching. Cameroon and Egypt are at a nil-nil tie at the end of extra time. They will be going to penalties as this is discussion is happening, so be sure to give an update. I'd, realistically, just from a Liverpool perspective, I'd like to see you know Egypt advance so I could watch Mane play Salah. But in my eyes, realistically, this is Senegal's tournament to lose. We look back to the 2018 World Cup where they don't advance to the knockouts because of fair play points. I personally think that this Senegal team could wreck, wreak, excuse me, wreak some havoc come World Cup so long as they get there. Because you look up and down that roster, it's definitely talent, but it's also, you know, I've watched a little bit of the Cup of Nations and the way they play, it's just so cohesive. You know, they know their strengths. And when we talked about the United States and, you know, there's a chemistry missing, that's not the case with the Senegalese team. So, Nick, Maddie, talk me through it. We'll, can speculate if Cameroon or Egypt's going to do it. we got 10 penalty kicks coming up, so we'll certainly know sooner rather than later which one's going to make it. But what do we think of the Senegalese team? Because the talent's there, the cohesion's there. For me, it's a dark horse team that could really make some noise. It reminds me of like the Ivory Coast teams from days past where you had like Drugba, Gervinho, Dumbia, those guys, just in terms of, you know, quality going forward. But their, their midfield is also loaded and their defense. I mean, when you have, you know, Koulibaly as one of your starting center backs next to Diallo with Mendy in that. That's a really strong three. And then in the midfield, you got Idrisa Gay, you got Kuyate, you got Nikhil Mendy. Napolis Mendy from Leicester. It's just a loaded team in terms of talent. And I don't think that they're getting the recognition they deserve probably because they don't play in, you know, CONCACAF for an American audience or Europe for an American audience. But this team, in my opinion, could really make some noise at the World Cup. Yeah, when we talked about AFCON, I think it was two or three weeks ago towards the end of the group stage, it was me and Maddie and James Burley. We were talking about Senegal, and in the group stage, they were struggling to put the ball in the back of the net. They scored just one goal in their three games, and we were wondering, you know, is it just a matter of time before that attacking power, you know, shines through? Because you've got Mane up top, like you said, you've got other players who can really do a job, and that's exactly what happened. It was really only a matter of time. And Senegal, what you need in these tournaments is you need to get better as, the, as they go along, and we've seen it. You know, time and time again with teams who struggle a little bit in the group stage and then they just hit their stride in knockout rounds and, you know, that's it. And that's exactly what's happened with Senegal. And like you said, Keenan, when you think about a team like that, you know, your mind immediately goes to, you know, the world-class, you know, superstar in Mane, who's one of the best wingers in the world. But really the base of the team is really strong too. When you've got Adrissa Gay and Kuyate holding down the midfield and that center back pairing of Diallo and Koulibaly is, it's a very good center back pairing to have. And then Mendy, one of the best goalies in the Premier League, he's proved to be one of the best goalies in the world for Chelsea. This is a team that I think no matter who wins the semifinal on penalties, I think Senegal really are the favorites as they should be. And, you know, it's a real shame to look ahead even past AFCON and into World Cup qualifying the way the way World Cup qualifying works in Africa is, you know, they played a whole group stage and now every team advances. Now there's just five, you know, two leg games and the winner goes to the World Cup. 
So Egypt got drawn against Senegal in those World Cup qualifiers. So they play two legs and either Salah or Mane will not go to the World Cup. And it's a shame that the, that the draw works like that. It's also, you know, a little bit of a, in my opinion, a, a dumb system to have every team's qualification go down to, you know, just two, a two-legged tie, to, you know, even doesn't even matter what they did in the group stage of qualifying. It just all comes down to one two-legged tie. So, you know, even you talk about a team going um, on a big run in the World Cup, but Senegal could easily not show up in that in that qualifier against Egypt and get knocked out. But I don't think that'll happen. I think it'll be Senegal at the World Cup, and I think it'll be Senegal winning AFCON just because of the balance of their team. They've got talent going forward. They're strong at the back. And I think, you know, if, if Egypt, like you said, Keenan, I would like to see Egypt against Senegal in the final. Cameroon are the hosts. The penalties are going on right now. But I think even if Cameroon, Cameroon win and they're, and they're the hosts, I think Senegal have to be the favorites. Yeah, you make a great point. I think the group stage has been very interesting. I never really thought much of Senegal, especially in the group stage, when you look back at so many of their 0-0 tie games that they had. It, it didn't really inspire much in me. And then you see the round of 16 happen. You see them go on this run of just two or more goals in their opponent in these games. And it really shows how much more uniform they are than the other teams. I think they are definitely the favorite to win in my opinion. And I think after watching, I've been watching a little bit of the Cameroon Egypt game and it's been very tough to try and choose a favorite. I'm honestly not too confident about Egypt in this game. I think going into it, I think they were pretty weak to start off. And I think even in the second half, they had multiple opportunities to finish this game, especially in the last couple minutes. There was a shot. There was like four or five players in the box. Nobody could capitalize on that. And when you have to go in and play a team that has constantly scored two to three goals a game, constantly getting up there, you can't miss opportunities like that. Obviously, right now with the penalties going on, it is anybody's game. I think that completely equalizes. I think it takes anything out. But seeing these two teams not be able to really take any effective shots is very interesting to watch. I think Senegal overall has been way more dominant. I think they could make a decent run. I think the criticism will really come into play where they feel like, oh, are the teams that they played World Cup level to begin with? The answer is no, but I don't think that undermines the way that team has worked together. I think you mention how effective some of those young players have been in terms of playing that outside. And I think it's very impressive. I think it's going to work for them because I think a lot of young players are going to be the future for this World Cup. I think having a bunch of old stagnant players is not going to work well. And so I would put it on Senegal to go decently far. I don't think they would make it exceptionally far just because I am still a little skeptical after seeing the slow group stage and then seeing some of the teams they did play in the Africa Cup of Nations and did so well against. I think it's still fair for me to be skeptical, but I think definitely no matter what happens, they're my favorite to win for the tournament overall. Yeah, and, you know, watching this World 
world. AFCON penalty shootout right now. Just live updates are on. Cameroon just missed their second. It's currently 1-1 with, an, with Egypt having a chance to go up. Unfortunately, we're not going to run out of time before we can all sit and watch together this penalty shootout. That being said, I think, you know, when you look at the African qualifying cycle and how it's done in terms of, you know, those two-leg ties that have to be played, and you know, one team's in, one team's out, obviously probably something that needs to be revamped in coming years. And it's sad that, you know, you're going to have to forego a good Egypt team or a good Senegalese team at the World Cup. But that is, I guess, the nature of it. The United States are off until March, thankfully, allowing all of us with high blood pressure to simmer down and not be at health risk for another month. But it's certainly going to be a month of speculation. And, you know, when it's kind of the cruelty of it being a prolonged break is you're going to have a month to sit on these past three results and, you know, wonder what Burr is going to do because, Nick, you talked about him being a character. He certainly is a character, and he's about as unpredictable as they come in terms of, you know, both what he's going to say, what he's going to do, but more importantly, how he's going to set up a lineup and how he's going to run tactics for a match. Certainly going to be interesting when we hop on the podcast in March 24th is the first game. They conclude the end of March. I think March 28th is the last match day, but don't quote me on that. They might have one on the 30th. I'm certainly, you know, interested beyond all belief, worried beyond all belief, and I just can't wait to get to March. That being said, we've got a ton of interesting soccer coming up in terms of domestic leagues. You know, you look at England, you look at Spain, and you look at even Germany. You know, obviously you think Bayern is going to run with it, but Dortmund's still hanging around. Super excited for all that good stuff coming up, and then obviously Champions League resumes this month. So, in that gap we have between now and March, ton of fun soccer that we're going to get to cover here. We get to do it every week, which is always super exciting as those, you know, matches roll in, storylines develop. Nothing more fun than taking a break from whatever garbage schoolwork I have to do to talk about soccer because it truly is the greatest sport on earth. That all being said, I'm Keenan Troy for Nick Guzman and Maddie Bimonte saying take care, take a Tums. Do whatever you got to do to get ready for March because when it comes, there's nothing, there's no telling of what's going to happen or what we're going to do. But I'm telling you this right now you better be excited about the U.S. men because they have a chance to make the World Cup. And with this talented of a roster, anything can happen if they get to Qatar. Take care, guys.